We've been walking through a New Testament letter called 1 Peter. Now, if you're here for the first time, you don't know probably what 1 Peter is uh, or not as familiar with it, and that, that's cool. And when, here's the deal. When we walk through a letter in the scriptures or a portion of scripture, instead of just topics, what we like to do is walk through it fully, that by the end of it, we would have read it all together. And um, there's, so the, good thing of, the, the good thing about that is we just hit topics that we might not choose, but the scriptures choose for us. The difficult thing about that is sometimes you hit some passages you're like, man, I'd like to, I'd like to skip that. Like, I don't want to talk about that now. Or uh, maybe that's good for another time. And so today we land on this section of First Peter, which uh, I think it, it might ruffle some feathers when I read it. And I thought, should I avoid it? We have, today's a mixed crowd. I know that there's people here for the first time. And uh, I thought, man, should I avoid this text? Should I just do like a real easy, you know, kind of thing? And I'm like, or should we attack it and just do it? And I'm like, let's just do it. Let's just kind of get into it. And, and here's, here's where I'm coming from. I recognize that, especially some people in our crowd today, um, maybe have a, have a distrust of the Bible or a distrust of the scriptures or even a, a distrust or skepticism of faith or religion or Christianity, which is not uncommon in our society today. And I get it. Here's one of the reasons I understand that. There are people who quote, who quote the scriptures Uh, read from the scriptures or teach the Bible who claim to live according to it, but have a really bad reputation. And so you see someone like that or or, um, uh, an experience like that or an event and you're like, man, if if they teach the Bible or they're quoting this verse or this is their rationale, then I don't want to have anything to do with it. Well, the text we're going to read today, I believe, has one of two outcomes. It has the potential to show us the, the, you know, the power or the transforming power of Christianity in a person, in a life, in a community, when someone or a group of people follow Jesus as Lord. But it also, sometimes misrepresented or quoted out of context, can paint a picture of Christianity that might feel outdated or irrelevant to some people and maybe want to skip over it. So I'll let you guys be the judge. That's why I said it's going to be a fun or controversial morning. So I'll let you guys be the judge. So those of you who are new, are you glad we're, we're, like, we're not pulling any punches? We're, like, we're just going to... Okay, cool. So, so first, first Peter chapter 3, and um, I lost it. It's not here. It's gone. There it is. Okay, here we go. Now, we've been reading out of this. So for those of you who are new, we've been reading this whole letter together. So we stopped just where this ended. So it might feel abruptly jumping into this. But listen to this. Wives, in the same way, submit, to your, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that in any of them, if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from an outward adornment such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold or fine jewels or clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. I think let's pray first. God, just speak to us, lead us, guide us. um, Help us to see just your beauty and grace and truth in this, God, for all of us. In your name we pray. Amen. 
So I, I bet that if I read this text verbatim at a high school assembly, I, pro- I might get booed. And I think if, if I presented a TED talk and quoted this literally just out of the, out of the, you know, out of the talk, I, I might not get the applause at the end by just reading it. Who's thinking that that might be the case, right? I, I get it. I get it. Now, before we dismiss it or get angry at it, I have a question for you. How many of us get caught up with cultural norms? How many of us get caught up with cultural norms when culture says to us what is normal for life or work or relationships or money or gender roles. And, you know, just recently, right, there was a pretty serious, uh, you know, over the last couple of months, the, the whole Me Too phenomenon, right? Hashtag Me Too. Alyssa Milano, uh, a couple of months ago, tweeted hashtag Me Too and said, if any other women have experienced something horrific like this or uh, um, manipulative or abusive from men, please use this hashtag. And within, like... Very little time, like 30,000 people were like already onto this. And it's, think about that. That's a devastating reality check that it became normal for some men, not all, because there's no man I personally know that has, has been involved in that, but it's became normal for some men to manipulate women, to abuse women, or expect sexual response from women because they hope to advance their career or worse that this woman might want to avoid some kind of physical abuse. Isn't it sad that something like this can be seen normal in somebody's life? And maybe among their circles? Now that's a real heavy one. But there's some other ones that are a little lighter, but maybe have become normal. Have you guys noticed that it's really common for men to look stupid on sitcoms, right? That's that's become normal um, in, in culture, that industries use like good looks and, and sex to sell products, that for, for a long time, uh, and, and it's changing now, but that women were treated less than equal at work. Those, some of those, those become cultural norms, and it's, they're not great ones. Debt has become a cultural norm where people live beyond their means and spend more than they make and, and are just up to here with debt and spending way more than ever comes in the bank account. Some of these things have become cultural norms. Have you seen some of those, identified them? What Peter's doing in this text is actually pretty shocking here. And not just for us. It was actually even a kind of a a cultural comment on their society 2,000 years ago. And he's cutting through cultural expectations of the day and pointing to how following Jesus actually makes a difference in your relationships, in your home, in your life. And you read that, really? You know, wives submit to your husband? That, that, was, that was Peter, like, culturally cutting through? There's other things he says that really demonstrate this. But I want to start with this one. I want you to just consider the audience, because as Peter is writing to these people in the first century in a region called Asia Minor, where they were, he calls them often in this letter, strangers, foreigners, exiles. They felt alone. They felt marginalized, sometimes because of their status, often because of their faith. And so he's speaking primarily to women in his, let's say, in his church that were married to, peop- to men who weren't Christians. These women, uh, over whatever amount of time, um, understood who Jesus was, understood the faith, and became followers of Jesus. Their husbands weren't. So he's speaking to a group of women in his church, just like last week we talked about different segments in his church, and they were specific, that were new to faith, and very likely their husbands were not Christians. And we know this because of Peter's motive. He says, "Do, do this so you might win your husbands over through your life and posture and 
attitude and behavior. To win them over to what? To win them over to what they've discovered in Christianity, in Jesus. What they've discovered has been so freeing, so wonderful, so amazing. And Peter says, the way you now go back home tomorrow or, back, or home and how you interact with your family, that you can, you can live in such a way for a season at least to be an influence to your husband who doesn't know or believe. See, Peter's speaking to a particular people in a, for a particular purpose in a particular place. Wives in a mixed marriage. And Peter is trying to help these women live out their new faith, this new life that they've discovered at home with their husbands. Now, the culture at the time was, was definitely more male-dominated than it was today. In, a, in the Jewish-Palestinian region, it was very common for there to be expectations for women with their husbands. In the Greco-Roman world, it was a little less. In Asia Minor, where they were, it was very likely that there were actually women who, um, who, uh, uh, who ran businesses, who were involved socially. Um, I, I believe even in that small region, they were able to vote at the time. Now, I'm saying these things, and of course, to our modern culture, it seems strange. But that was the reality at the time. But religion was one thing that if a woman went home and said, I change religion, that was like insubordination to their husband, even in Asia Minor, even where women were allowed to, to, to work more freely. In other words, a woman would rarely, if ever, change religion because of her household. Never. Rarely. Because it would cause a problem. It would cause a rift. And here's Peter. He's not expecting these new Christians to go home and revolutionize their homes overnight and, and change culture and, and change maybe some of the extremes that were, were happening. But he's saying, if you would like to see your husband discover the incredible things that you've received and you now know about Jesus. And you, you, need, to, you need now to make a step forward in, the, in this moment, in this season, with grace and gentleness and goodness. And, and I go back to what Peter said a couple of chapters later, uh, earlier in chapter 2, verse 12, where he tells these group of people generally, live such good lives among the, in the world around you, so that they will see your good deeds and glorify your God in heaven. Though they accuse you, Peter says, because they were accused, they were marginalized, but Peter says, if you live in such a way that demonstrate the, the goodness of God, you will, you will be able to influence people around you to be interested and curious about what you have in Christ. Now, this is tough for some, us in our modern culture to hear, right? When we hear words like this, don't live out of freedom for the sake of winning someone over. Really? You don't want me to live in freedom for the sake of somebody else? Even for a season? Or I'm going to put my dream on hold for a season? Why would I put my dream on hold for somebody else. I'm going to be more quiet. For how long? In what way? What's the outcome going to be? Now, let me just step back and, and ask this question. What does Peter really believe about women in that time period? What does he really believe and what has been changing his perception? What does he value? And I see a couple of things. One is he saw Jesus Peter's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was with Jesus. He saw Jesus lift up women in a culture that put them down. He saw women, though they weren't in the 12 disciples, they were in the larger discipleship group that followed Jesus. He saw women included in that group of people. 
It was women who first told Peter that Jesus resurrected from the dead and they believed them. They took their word. They took these women's word. In that culture where officially a woman's testimony was not valid in a court of law, these men took these, this, these women's testimony of the resurrection of their Lord and Savior as true and spread the word. In other words, they, they, they valued them and embraced them. And when the church started to grow after Jesus resurrected from the grave and the church exploded with growth and the power of the Holy Spirit, God's very spirit started to bless the church and fill the church and and people started to come to faith. Peter's first sermon, he stands up and preaches a sermon and he quotes an Old Testament prophet named Joel. And he literally quotes these words that your young men and your young women will see visions and prophesy. This is part of what has been now shaping Peter's view of women as a Christ follower. And then I'm sure that he affirmed Paul's declaration in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, and it's on the screen. Paul, this is one of the most, I think, important verses in terms of value and, and who and our identity as humans. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, there is neither slave nor free, there is, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This sense of value and equality within the body of Christ, within the church. And the, the gospel, as Paul unpacked it for the Ephesian church, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, talks about a mutual submission out of a love and reverence for Jesus Christ. It's amazing. The first century Rome, there was more men than women demographically. Today it's different. There's more women than men, I believe, kind of around the planet. But around some parts of the Roman Empire, it was categorically different. There was more men than women. You know why? Because baby girls weren't valued in the Roman Empire. And it wasn't a valuable thing for a family to give birth to a little girl. And often little girls were aborted specifically because they were girls. And unmarried women were sometimes abandoned in that context. But you know what historians noticed? Historians noticed that within a hundred years of the church growing, the perception of women among them started to change. That Christian communities actually had a growing population of women among them. You know why? Because they were rescuing the little girls that were going to be aborted. And they were embracing the abandoned women that were left aside. And Peter believed that fully. That's how the church started to grow even in that first hundred years. A historian named Rodney Stark, listen to what he says as he, as he, he, he really researched the era. He says, Christian women enjoyed substantially higher status within the Christian subcultures than pagan women did in the world at large. In other words, among Christian circles as they were growing, people started to notice they were valued much better in this circle than in this circle. And he he goes on to say, and I I love how he kind of unpacks it in the next slide. He says, Christianity did not seek to change the status of women by protesting and rebelling against the established authorities. Instead, Christianity did change the status of women within the Christian community itself. So they started within, exactly kind of what Peter's saying. This caused Christianity to flourish among certain groups and led to change outside the community at different times and in various situations. So it started inside among Christian circles and it started to influence the world around them. Fits into what Peter's saying. To these wives, in this particular moment, particular situation, particular people, start by showing your husband another way. 
not by demanding another way, but showing him another way. In your moment, as, as a person who's come to know Christ and your husband doesn't, and he's saying, live this at home. And one of the ways he cuts through the cultural norm of the time is in the next couple of verses. In verse 3, he says, Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle spirit and quiet spirit, which is such great worth in God's sight. Now, I think that, like, you've got to understand it's possible, even in that context, that some of the women maybe came from a home that had some wealth, so they had jewelry and fine clothes and everything. And Peter's not saying necessarily that that's a wrong thing, but he's talking about how to really pursue beauty. And this is something like women and men can learn. That's why I didn't show up today in my pajamas, right? Like, that's why I got up and I got dressed and I'm presentable to you. That's why, like, Thursday I cut my hair. Like, we do these things, right, to, to make sure that our appearance is decent for other people, that we look presentable and, and, you know, appreciated in that way, right? That's why. Aren't you glad I didn't come in my pajamas today, right? So, so Peter is not telling us or telling women never get dressed or don't look nice or, you know, don't ever put makeup or jewelry, especially in a modern context. But he's saying there's a beauty that goes way further in your relationships than your outward beauty. There's a beauty and it comes from a special place that goes way further than in your relationships in your life than an outward beauty. And I was thinking, is it, was this only the first century? And then I just kind of Googled a whole bunch of women and men's magazines. And I looked at the covers and I realized it wasn't just a first century thing. It's a 21st century thing, right? How many times do I look at a, at a magazine and it says, like, if I have the tighter abs, right? And the bigger arms or the bigger chest, or if you wear the sexier clothes at work to impress and achieve, or if you get looks that just kill on your next date, it's going to be awesome. And so you just do that. Just scan like magazines and look at, their, look at their front covers. Just go home and do that today. Google images and look at a whole bunch of front cover magazines. Nothing much has changed in terms of how we feel we need to be beautiful. Men and women alike. And yet we know, and I know you know this, and it doesn't matter if you've come today and you're not a Christian or you're not religious, I bet that you know this in your heart as much as I know this, that deep inside, the people that have made the most impact on our lives, the parents that have influenced their kids in the most special ways, the people that have added the most meaning to us, um, maybe the dates that you've gone on and you went home filled with joy and laughter, I bet it had nothing to do with what people were wearing. I bet it had nothing to do if they, if they had like a full Pandora bracelet or just something else. Or, I, I bet it had nothing to do with that, right? There was some, an inner beauty that came from these people that brought you meaning and joy and laughter. See, Peter is telling specifically, as he's speaking to the wives at the moment, though men and singles should all learn from him, Let your inner beauty shine because it's your most valuable asset in relationships and life. And this is such a a beautiful way that Peter cuts through the culture of the time with the amazing truth of the gospel. Now, if if you want to know where Peter was really going with this, he cuts through another cultural norm that affects men, women, and marriage. And in verse 7, right? In verse 7, we don't have time to hit every single word of this text, but in verse 7, he says these words, Husbands... In the same way, because to the women he said wives in the same way, and he's referring back to what he said in a couple of verses earlier 
uh, about living such good lives, about being aware of your, of your surroundings, whether you're a citizen in the government, whether at that time a slave in, in a work situation, and here, wives and husbands. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. You know, and it's unfortunate today, like as soon as, as soon as you read weaker partner, people today, like their antenna goes up and like, oh my gosh, what are they saying about women? I mean, all, all they're saying, I know women can, can basically do everything men can do, but they're just talking about a physical uh, strength that generally a male would have indifference of a woman. It's hard to read sometimes texts and then with the unfortunate kind of like um, radars that culture has put on us. So here... Peter is speaking to husbands. And in this situation, it's different than the wives because it's very likely, like I said, in the home in the first century, normally religion was common. And if a, a man came to faith, if a man came to know Christ, if a man became a Christian, he would, he would have more in that time frame an open door to share that with his wife openly. And it was very likely that she would come to faith sooner. And they both Now we're Christians. And so here's Peter likely speaking to a husband who is a Christian and whose wife is likely a Christian. But you know, it even goes through what he just tells them cuts through cultural norms of the time. And even of today, if you scan some of the magazines as well, watch enough TV, look at some things, you'll see it. But look what Peter says to these husbands in the first century. Be considerate as you live with your wives. In other words, really think hard of how you will live this new faith you have and how you will live this life you have with your spouse. In other words, allow your new faith to influence your marriage and relationship in tangible ways. Now, there's no doubt in in most people's minds that most women would appreciate a confident, a consistent, a clear-headed husband. I think most would say that. So this is, this is not saying that, that men should not be strong in their own right and confident and you know, just be who they're called to be in life and in marriage as well. But the, there's these two phrases that really demonstrate this call to see in their wives with equal value. And it's these, these two last phrases I highlighted. Be considerate as you live with your wives. And the second one, heirs with you. In, in the original language, it's two words together, life together. Be considerate for your, what? Life together. It's together. So no longer is Peter, Peter's, like the culture at the time might create this kind of idea where, you know, men, and, you know, and, and we're not going to get into gender roles and marriage roles today, but like where men might be stronger and more dominant. Look, look what he says. He's like, remember, this marriage is a life together. You're living together. Be considerate of your life together. It's not just the husband's life or goals or dreams. It's life together. Be considerate as you live with your wife and consider her dreams and her gifts and her strengths and her heart. And this cuts through the culture of the time. And, and you know, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I, didn't, do, I didn't do this well you know, when I dated um, and when I got married, I had such a strong ambition for what the Lord was calling me to in ministry for the church, right? That at times I, I felt it, w- it should be normal 
that, yes, my wife and I are partners. Yes, my wife uh, you know, um, feels called in, in, in similar ways that I do. But what I did at times was I allowed this idea that, oh, because this is ministry and God's calling on my life, that that's important, more important than maybe a calling on her life or what the Lord's doing in her or the gifts she has. And I'm going to be honest with you, I messed that up a lot. I messed that up a lot. You might think, well, I mean, Dave, it's the Lord. It's for Jesus, you know, following Jesus and doing ministry. And there were times pre-marriage that I sometimes would have, you know, I would wrestle in my mind. Well, what if, what if God leads me this way or I want to do this? Is, is my decisions and relationships going to stunt that? And of course, there's room for that. Please, if you're, if you're dating or considering marriage or considering a husband or a wife, yes, you must think that. There are things that God has called me to do that if I wouldn't have married a woman who loves the Lord and seeks the Lord, we would never have been doing. I wouldn't be preaching today if, you know. So there is room to make those discerning decisions. But what I am saying is sometimes... Um, what Peter's kind of cutting through this is this idea that it's only one person's dreams and one person's ideas, one person's ambitions. Listen to what he says next. He says, heirs with you. To respect her as an heir with you. What does that, that mean? It means that they both found Jesus. They've both discovered the life of Jesus. They both have value in the life of Jesus. So faith and grace and identity and purpose, they share that. And they've both received this amazing gift of life from Jesus. And so if that's true, they're heirs together. What does an heir mean? An heir means that you have some inheritance coming, right? That you're part of something that's, that's promised to you. And Peter says, you're heirs together. It's not just what's promised to you. It's promised to both of you. That means that you both have something beautiful together. And there is value that God doesn't play favorites that way. And that equal value spills out into your relationship and into your life and into your life together. And so, unfortunately, the culture at the time might have shaped men to see women, even their wives as inferior. The gospel started to change that. What an amazing witness of, of what it means to know Jesus. And think of the words that Peter said. Consider it. Life together. Heirs together. Respected. It's beautiful. And that cuts through the cultural norm of the time. And maybe in some ways sometimes cuts through our cultural norms. Now, man, today, today my goal wasn't to kind of do a marriage seminar and to talk about you know, all the specifics of marriage. There's maybe need for that and, and an importance for that around roles and our posture towards one another, dynamics, and the scripture has lots to say. But strangely enough, when I read this text and I, I realized, do I skip this text? Do I just like forget it? Do we jump into it? What does it say about Christianity? What does it say about Jesus? What does it say about the gospel? And strangely enough, I believe I saw this text, how it pointed to the power of the gospel, that Christianity actually was making a difference in people's lives and hearts as they chose to follow Jesus. And it was working in homes and communities. And it overflowed, like that historian said, into the greater culture. That's the power of Christianity. When I say Christianity, I mean the belief that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, that we come to discover who Jesus is. He's God's son, that yes, he did die on a cross for us and resurrected from the grave. And when we follow him, when we put our lives in alignment with him, he begins to change us. And he even changes our perspectives. And sometimes he will cut through cultural norms. Sometimes the ones we agree with, and sometimes the ones we don't agree with. 
But he has the power to do that because he's Lord. And so let me kind of end this way with this statement to kind of take it away like out of the, the marriage environment. And it's this next thing. The gospel frees us from something, but it also frees us for something. When I say the word gospel for somewhere new today, I mean the message and person and teachings of Jesus Christ. That he died on the cross and resurrected from the grave and that he's given us new life. The gospel frees us from some things, but it also frees us for some things. So the gospel frees us not just from sin, but sometimes even from ourselves. The gospel frees us from our own selfish ambition, our blinded priorities, our impatient um, pursuits, our cultural expectations. Man, the gospel frees us when we get drained by trying to live by appearances when we get drained by trying to just look a certain way, the gospel frees us from idolizing appearances and idolizing a way of life where it just drains us because that's all we're thinking about and we can't get out of that cycle. And, and we're looking for a compliment, an affirmation, and a good look, and a this, and a that. And again, the scripture doesn't say we cannot get dressed up and you know, look good. But when those things become our gods, oh, they drain us. They just drain us. And the gospel wants to free us from that. The gospel wants to free us from the fatigue of having to look a certain way and be a certain thing for somebody else. The gospel wants to free us from that. But it also frees us for something. It frees us for compassion. It frees us to love well. It frees us to be humble. It frees us to be content for resilience, for loving relationship. My wife and I saw The Greatest Showman last night. Really good movie. Um, and I won't give the plot away, but there's just this, this tension between the, the greatest showman and his wife and his ambitions and her contentment with the simple life. And there's a, she's, you know, she's beautiful and has wonderful kids and has great things around her, but there's this just freeing contentment about her. And this tension, and you can see how it drains the greatest showman, how it pulls him down. And, and it just reminds me that the gospel frees us for contentment, frees us to be who God calls us to be. How does the gospel do that? And I'll end with this. When Jesus becomes Lord of our lives, everything else doesn't become Lord. Isn't that amazing? When Jesus becomes Lord, because he's rightfully Lord, when, he, when I say Jesus is Lord, that means everything else in my life does not Lord over me. That means that my appearance and my money and my ambition and my house and even the people in my life, some good things, they don't become Lord over me. They lose their hold. They lose the, the, that kind of like idolatrous influence. When Jesus becomes Lord, everything else loses control over me and it frees me and us from cultural expectations and demands and patterns and Jesus frees you he frees you because when you serve him you no longer have to be a slave to anything else when he becomes your lord and master you're no longer slaves to anything else that's why the scripture has such strong language that even says we're God's slaves it's not a bad thing because God is so awesome we serve him but what, you know the beautiful thing when we serve him nothing we become slaves to nothing else to nothing else when he becomes our master and that's freeing and then he gives you and me the strength and the grace for something else for something better 
to stand up when we need to, or maybe to serve when we need to, to be strong in a moment when we need to, or maybe to be subversive in a moment when we need to. He gives you the love for someone, even when it's a spouse who doesn't affirm your relationship with God, so you can influence them through your behavior. And he frees you, even when culture says to exert your power, he frees you from the need of that to serve and love, considerate and empowering. But here's the the thing, and I'll I'll end with these last words. Jesus does that, but only when we allow him to free us. (laughs) Jesus does that only when we allow him to free us. Only when we recognize who he is, what he's done, his death and resurrection, and when we say, Jesus, I call you Lord. I want you to lead my life. All of a sudden he starts working in us, and all the other things that hold us start to drop away, and we grow into that. That's not an overnight thing. Look at what happened in the early church. It didn't take overnight. It happened over time. But it's something that we continually grow into. And that is the potential of Christianity, not just to change you and me, but to change the surroundings around you. Isn't that amazing? That is the power of the gospel. That is the power of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. And as I pray, I I just invite you, I'm going to take this moment just to briefly pray and invite God to work in us. but maybe some of you are thinking like, well, what's, what do I do? What, what's my next step? And I just encourage you, if there was something in what we saw today, even one of these texts that seems like you know, an obstacle or hurdle, but you're like, wow, there's something different there. But I would just encourage you to search, to come back next week, to pick up the gospel and read the stories of Jesus, to say, Lord, would you show me a little bit more about who you are? I'm intrigued. I'm interested. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that um, when you call us to follow your son Jesus and call him Lord it's hard to recognize but really ultimately you are freeing us from everything else that we have called Lord and I know some people here today even in this moment have deep pains and wounds and are fatigued from some of the things that are lording over their lives, some of the things that they have allowed to become lord in their life. God, I pray for their freedom. I pray that they would discover that you can lead them, and that when you lead them, you free them. And may we see the beauty in that. May we see even the paradox in that, that when you lead us, you free us. So may people today, God, leave with some chains broken in their lives. With some pain relieved in their life. God, I pray that we would discover the life you have for us in Christ. And for some that just their curiosity was, was, was um, piqued today, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work deeply in Draw them to search and pursue, come to know you. And God, just a special prayer, uh, even for marriages today, that you would help um, each husband and wife be the spouse that they're called to be, that they would learn how to serve one another within their context, within their roles, that they would um, be open and embraceive of each other's gifts and callings, God, that you would just, that the gospel would be at work there. 
and that where, where there's a need to serve, that, we would, that the gospel would free us to serve, where there's a need to grow in confidence, that the gospel would free us to grow in confidence. For your glory, God, to express the beautiful vision you have for us, for the world, and really for all relationships, God, even beyond marriage. God, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.